Lord bless you. Thank you. You may be seated. We are, I misspoke a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and I mistakenly said we had one session left in our element series. We actually had two, and we did these a little bit of out of order. Pastor, I believe, talked last Wednesday night about separated for a purpose. But what we have been focusing on really in this last module, this last series of lessons, are issues of life and living and allowing the Lord to to work in us. When we receive the Holy Ghost, there should be some outward reflection of that. The fact that we have the power of God, the nature of God inside of us, our life ought to look different than when our nature was in control. When when we were doing things my way, um, I had a way of messing things up. And and every once in a while, we still get intention and uh, the old man rears his ugly head. Life gets out of balance. I mess up things again. But we have the Spirit of the Lord and it does help us to overcome and to be what the Lord would have us to be. Tonight, we're going to talk about some really practical aspects of that. And to kind of set the stage, I want to draw your attention to John 11, a very familiar passage of scripture. Um, but there, there is something here that I kind of want to draw our attention to. This is the story, as you probably know, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Lazarus has been sick, and the Lord <clears throat> is um, not nearby. And the word comes to him that Lazarus is sick, and the Lord actually delays. They called for the Lord to come so that he could heal Lazarus. But the Lord delays, and by the time he gets there, and in fact, when they are on the way, the Lord says to his disciples that Lazarus is sleeping. And uh, the disciples, of course, misunderstood that. They said, oh, it must be good, he must be on the mend, he must be healing, and the Lord kind of shakes his head and says, No, Lazarus, our friend, is dead. But he says, I'm glad for your sakes because you're going to see the power of God. And you know the story of how he arrives on the scene and Mary and Martha are all worked up and they have their own perspective about what is going on. And the Lord really talks to both of them about being patient to see the power of God and to see the Spirit of the Lord work. And, of course, he says, show me to the tomb. And they say, but it's been four days, and this is not going to be pleasant. And uh, they take him to the tomb, and then he asks them to roll away the stone, and that's when they start to get a little bit worried. If, if you are interested in such things, of course you can find anything these days on the internet. But if you want to see what happens as a human body decomposes, even within 72 or 96 hours, it's not a very pleasant scene. And there's a significant amount of uh, deterioration, shall we say, that has occurred when life is gone. And the Lord says, roll away the stone, and so they're puzzled. But of course, um, he, he then calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And 
Lazarus comes out of that tomb. Now, there's so much that could be drawn from this story, but what I want to draw your attention to tonight is the fact that what the Lord did there, obviously to call someone from the dead, someone who has been dead four days, I have heard people say, well, there were other dead people in the tomb, and if the Lord had not called Lazarus, there might have been, if he just said come forth, there might have been a whole bunch of them coming out. That may well have been true as well. But I also think that when he said Lazarus, because Lazarus wasn't there anymore, there was a decomposing body, the remains, the residue of Lazarus was there. When he said Lazarus, that was a creative thing that God did. He brought everything back into being inside that tomb. It's kind of a fascinating thing because if you, if you know any of the burial practices of the day, they would wrap the body in linens and spices and ointments. And they were trying, of course, to mask the processes, the natural processes that would occur. And so there was, there were these heavy wrappings, including what they call the napkin around the head. They would wrap all around the head and the face and all of that. And probably the closest exposure for most of us is if you've ever seen a movie where there was a mummy. That's what they were doing. They were creating a, a mummy of sorts. And just to think that inside that, it would be impossible to breathe. He's covered. But the Lord not only created that body back inside that wrapping and healed whatever else was in there and recreated all of that, but he also put um, oxygen, enough oxygen in those muscles to get them going and for Lazarus to be able to stand up and to walk out of that tomb. It's pretty amazing. And in fact, the scripture is very clear that that's exactly what happened. Um, he that was dead, John eleven forty four, came forth, notice it says, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. So you have this picture of this mummy walking out of the tomb, and Jesus turns to those that are standing there and says, Loose him and let him go. Because if he stays in that condition with those grave clothes, this great miracle that I've just done runs the risk of being a temporary thing. He's going to suffocate again if we don't get him out of these clothes. And I think this is very much like the experience that we have when we come to the Lord. When we come, we are, as Paul said, Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And our lives are deteriorating and decomposing, and they are a wreck when we get to the altar. But God speaks life to us. He gives us the spirit. And Paul said, you have he quickened or you have he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so we're filled with the Spirit, and God puts that life back into us, and he raises us up. But also, like Lazarus, if we're not careful, we retain many of the trappings of our old life. 
the grave clothes of the world that we came out of. It might be habits. It might be addictions. It might be um, attitudes. It can be any number of things that would cause us to stumble and to fall. And in fact, if we're not careful, perhaps even snuff the life of the Spirit out in us. And the Lord turns to the church then and says, loose him and let him go. And this is a, to me, this is a very graphical description of what discipleship is about. We are pulling off those old grave clothes, those old attitudes, those old tendencies that we had. Whenever life got rough, we would go one direction, and usually it was downhill. But now that we are filled with the Spirit, when life gets rough, we need to put off that old attitude. We need to put off those old tendencies and turn to another direction, turn to another place. And so this is the process of what happens in our lives as we learn and we begin to walk in the Spirit. And you know, A few weeks ago, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, how we have that nature inside of us, and it begins to bear that fruit, and there is love, and there is joy, and there is peace, those different aspects of that one fruit of the Spirit. So what I want to talk tonight about is a combination of things, and it has to do, first of all, with our heart. There are internal things, and really that's where it starts, is with our heart, and then the following thing, the thing that follows on after that, are the external things, our habits of life, our ways of life. How does this actually change the practical way in which we live? And I'll say it again. We have the nature of God living in us. Our external life, the way life would look to the casual passerby, if you have the nature of God living inside of us, it should look different than it did when we were in control. If we are being ruled by the Spirit of the Lord and we are filled with His Spirit. I know sometimes, you know, we think about infilling as what happens the first time that we get, that we receive the Spirit. We're speaking in tongues. But for a believer to walk and go through life filled with the Spirit does not necessarily mean that we're walking around just speaking in tongues all the time. If, if you say that someone is filled with anger or they're filled with hate, you know what that means. They're always acting in angry ways. They're always acting in hateful ways. Well, when we say that someone is living filled with the Spirit, that should mean that they are living their life in holy ways and that spiritual things are being demonstrated by their manner of living. The psalmist says, Psalm 24, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? And he gives a couple of answers, but it's this first one I want to focus on for just a minute. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. It's two parts to our holiness and to our purity. Now, I look at that verse and I say, well, I guess that counts me out. Because I can't have a pure heart and I can't have clean hands, but that is thinking in terms of what I am able to accomplish myself in my own flesh 
in my own capability, certainly I could never achieve that. But we have been made the righteousness of God in him. And he has put on us his righteousness. He has counted us righteous by faith. Now that's not the end of the story. That's what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. We are counted as righteous. But then there is this process of sanctification that happens in our lives. And that's what we're all familiar with, that this sanctification is another word for separation, of being separated, being set apart for a purpose. And this is the process that begins to happen in our lives once once we have received the Spirit and we learn how to utilize the power of the Spirit in our lives. Now, this is a really simple thing. If... If you had, you know, your normal situation financially, you're just kind of eking by and you got real life, you got real problems, you got real bills, and you're trying to figure out how to take, um, what is, what's the saying? There's a lot of month left at the end of the money. Um, <laughs> and, and so you're trying to figure out how, how to make it all work and how to meet all the necessary obligations. And, Lo and behold, you get a notice in the mail that you had this rich uncle that you never knew about, and he left you an inordinate amount of money in a Swiss bank account, okay? In order for that to really make a difference, you've got to learn, you've got to figure out how to get access to that account and how to get that money out of that account to help me pay some of these bills and help me live in a manner that is commensurate with what is actually in my name. When we receive the Spirit, we have a treasure. Paul said we receive this, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And part of our maturity is learning how to access what God has given to us and how to turn that in to victorious living. And if if we're not continually growing, we're living beneath our means. It's like having $30 million in the bank but not being able to make the ends meet because you don't know how to get the money out of the bank. When we have the Holy Ghost, God has given us this treasure, we have to learn how to take that and to utilize it and to bring it to bear in the everyday aspects of life. And so this is what we're kind of talking about here is we have a need to live life victorious and to overcome sin, how are we going to do that? The only way we can do it is with the power of the Spirit. The only way we can do it is with the power of the Holy Ghost. And we'll touch on this a little bit at the end, but spiritual disciplines become a key part of our lives. And, you know, I, sometimes maybe maybe that's folks think of that as an ugly word, but just think about Spiritual discipline. I call it habits, you know, good habits for living. And we have different generations in the room tonight. And if you've been around holiness movement, holiness people for very long, you've heard, you've heard teaching that may be tended too heavy one direction or another. And depending on what generation you were raised in, it, we, 
might have been out of balance. But here's the reality. Our lives are governed by, it's kind of, it's almost like economics in the sense our lives are governed by one reality, and that reality is scarcity. What I mean by scarcity is you don't have an infinite amount of anything in the natural. Everything is limited. Every supply is limited. You have limited money. We all know that. You have limited energy. You have limited intellect. You have limited emotion. You have limited time. And the way that we live our lives and what we accomplish is largely determined by the way that we spend these things of which we have limited supplies. How am I going to spend my time? How am I going to spend my money? How am I going to spend my energy? These are questions that come to bear in our lives. And the answer to that really is that we have to Well, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, very often they get divided into two camps. There are the disciplines of abstinence. Those are the things that we abstain from. Those are the things that we don't do. And then there are disciplines of engagement. Those are the things that we embrace and the things that we do. Now, why would we talk about spiritual disciplines in a time like this? Well, you remember... A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about having the nature of God, but we still have our old humanity. And those things wind up being in tension with each other. And just like when you cultivate a garden, what you're trying to do with your life is create an environment that is toxic to some things, but that is healthy for other things. And so we abstain from activities that encourage and nurture the things that we don't want and for the things that we do want those are the activities that we embrace i'm talking about things i mean preaching to the choir one of the things that we would engage in and that we would embrace is church attendance this is key to spiritual growth regular gathering with believers of like precious faith and fellowship and worship together it's a key thing But even beyond that, in your personal life, day to day, you want to create an atmosphere of prayer in your life, of communion with God. You want to create uh, an atmosphere of hearing the voice of God. So what do you do? You go to the Word of God and you're engaged with the Word of God and you allow the Word to speak into your life. And what that does, that creates an environment, frankly, that is toxic to ideas from the world. And so we'll, as we talk through some of these things, just keep that rolling over in the back of your mind. I want to create an environment in my life that is toxic to attitudes that are counter to the Spirit of God. And the Holy Ghost helps us with these things and enables us. So the psalmist said you've got to have clean hands and you've got to have a pure heart if you're going to see God. Now, James says it in much the same way, and he kind of answers our question, like, how could I ever have clean hands? How can I ever have a pure heart? If you read in James chapter 4, he says, um, verse 5, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, 
the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. He's talking about our natural man. Our natural condition is to lust after things that aren't ours and that we don't have. There's this constant need and constant desire to have. James says, but he, God, gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice what he says in verse 8. Draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Seems to be uh, almost an allusion directly to Psalm 24. But how does that happen? James says, well, you submit yourself to God and you draw nigh to God, and that will put you on the path to cleansing your hands and to purifying your double-minded heart. Then he says, be afflicted and mourn, weep. Humble yourselves, verse 10, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. There is an element of this where we have to really throw ourselves on the Lord and trust the Lord to be at work in our lives. So let's think about this a little bit. What does it mean to have a pure heart? And it's interesting to me that Paul, or that James rather, says, purify your hearts, you double-minded So the first thing is we cannot be of two minds if we're really going to have a pure heart. Our heart has to be single. And the Lord alluded to this even when talking about the eye is the light of the body. And if the eye is single, the body is full of light. If the eye is not, the whole body is full of darkness. And there is a darkness that comes with double-mindedness and not being able to figure out which way it is that we're going to go and what is we're going to be what is it that we're going to do? You've heard the old saying, if you live for God hard, it's easy. But if you live for God easy, it's hard. It's tough to ride the fence. It's not very comfortable. You really have to commit. And you would be amazed at how much easier it is to live for God when you're fully committed to him. And this is what James is saying. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Make, get, get a sense of singleness in your heart. There are several different aspects, I think, that relate to purity of heart. Probably the first one is honesty. Do we have a problem? Do we have difficulty with the truth? Do we play fast and loose with the truth? This is a way to gauge maturity, and different people have different besetting sins. I'm not casting stones, but but it's important God is truth, and there is no variableness in him. He is single and pure. And if we're going to be like him, there should be a love for truth that's in us. And if this is an area that causes us difficulty, then there needs to be um, a focus on that and an asking of the Lord to help us in that area. You think about it's not just telling the truth as a technicality, There needs to be a commitment to truth to not even be deceitful. You know, sometimes you can speak the truth, but you know the person who's hearing it is not taking it for the way you're saying it. You're leading them. You can lead them to a false conclusion. It's important not to even be deceitful, but to be sold out and to love truth. Those, that kind of a characteristic will come back to us 
if we're not careful. And um, I think ultimately there is great danger there because um, the New Testament writer said, if you receive not a love for the truth, God would send strong delusion. He's talking about doctrinal truth there. But really, we have to love truth in all aspects of our lives. And this leads into what we would call integrity. And and these two concepts walk hand in hand. Integrity really has to do with wholeness. That's where we get the term integral. If something is integrated, it's all together. It's one piece. It's, It's all together. If a man walks in integrity, what we really understand is that all of his life is in sync and in step. And he's not a living contradiction. But you, you, when you see him, whether you see him at the grocery store or at church or at work or in any environment, what you see is what you get because he's a man of integrity. And there's a wholeness and a singleness to him. And this really does go to purity of the heart. And... It leads, honesty and integrity will also lead us to humility. And it's important that we have a proper understanding of what we are, what we bring to bear and what we are able to accomplish. Um, Jesus, of course, is our great example of integrity. In Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippians and describes the integrity of Jesus Christ. And he, his admonition to us, and if our Lord is, has um, integrity and humility, then that's the model that we should be following after. But Paul said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, this doesn't mean that you have low self-esteem in the modern sense of the word. It's really just that... When you are humble, you're trusting, first of all, that the Lord is going to meet whatever need it is that you have. And if you see a brother or a sister in need, you're willing to give to that one to help them get what they need in their lives because you have confidence that God is going to take care of you. Now, the problem is if we have these, if we have attitudes like I'm the, captain of my vessel, I'm the master of my fate. Well, then I have full responsibility for everything that happens to me. So that means any blessing I have, I need to hoard it. I might need it later. But when we understand God is the one who's in control, and there's a lot more where that last blessing came from, we can be a lot more generous with each other. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about our attitude and what we tolerate and what we accept from people. We have a realistic view of ourselves and our own strengths and weaknesses, but we know that God loves us anyway. And so I have, I have plenty left to help and to reach and to try to accomplish. And this is what, um, to help a brother or a sister. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. It's not my responsibility completely to, I'm not ultimately responsible. I'm a child of God for myself, I mean. And my own well-being. I know that God will take care. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, think about this, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That, that the Lord of glory would come into this world and make himself of no reputation. This is our model. 
that we dare call ourselves Christians? Right? I mean, it's a scary thing when you begin to think about exactly what the Lord did. Made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant. King of kings. Lord of lords. But he, he became a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death. The very source of life was humbled himself and became obedient unto death. What humility. Even, not just any death, but the humiliating death of the cross. He humbled himself. And so if our hearts are going to be pure and we are going to be Christian, then there is needs to be an attitude of humility that pervades and saturates our lives as well because we have the great model of humility. Peter also says this, talking to those who would lead and would minister to the church. He says, submit yourselves, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you, he says, in fact, be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud. I don't want to be found in a wrestling match with God because I can't win that one. I just, I can't win that one. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And you know what the next verse says? Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. We like to pull that verse. Oh man, I like to be able to take that one to the bank. Cast all my care on him. It is in the context of being submitted one to another and being fully submitted to God. And when we are in that place, when we are submitted to him, and when we do recognize he is the source of strength and of life, then we are able to cast all of our cares on him. Amen. So really, purity of heart goes to all of these attitudes and ways and manners in which we live. Paul was writing to the Ephesians and he said, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31, Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So there's, there's a verse that we could probably spend the rest of our lives on. Putting all of those attitudes and all of those things out of our lives. But it is not hopeless because we do have the power of the Spirit. Once we begin to really purify our hearts and we see God at work in our hearts, it will work its way outward. And we will have clean hands. You will act based on the condition of your heart. Now you can say, well, I've heard people say things like, um, God knows my heart. That's one of the most fearful things that I can think of. Because Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things. You know what that means? You can't even know your own heart. You may think you're clean. 
But the prophet said, the heart is deceitful above all things. And then he adds, and desperately wicked. And to bring the point home, he asked the question, who can know it? The implication being, not you or me. And the fact that God knows our hearts should not give any of us comfort. We should be in the presence of the Lord every day saying, purify me, O God. Create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit, O God. Cast me not away from your presence. But as God begins that work in us, and he is faithful and he's gracious to do it, it will have an effect on the way that we live. And there, we live in an age where manner of living is not always emphasized. Anytime someone endeavors to live different, separated from the world, to draw a distinction from the world, there is a very quick, um, seemingly a very quick, uh, uh, someone pulls the trigger and calls legalism, you're trying to be saved by your works. But notice the psalmist in the Old Testament and James in the New Testament both said clean hands are a key part of being in the presence of God. And if God is not pleased with sin, he is not pleased with my sin. It's not just the person who has not been born again, but he's not pleased with my shortcomings. He's not pleased with my failures. To the degree then that I'm able to utilize the power of the Holy Ghost and to have victory in my life, I should be endeavoring to live righteously and soberly in this present world. And so this leads us to a discussion of what should our lives look like. And this is a topic that has more than we could cover tonight. But let me just let me just give you a few quick things and then you know pastor can fix all this up or he can <laughs> We need to be careful what we consume. And I mean, that applies to diet, but that's not even the most important thing. We need to be careful what we let come into our eyes and our ears. And we live in a world where there is all sorts of things available at our fingertips. And you can consume things. And unless somebody is regularly auditing your cell phone... There may not be anybody that ever knows it. This goes back to integrity. What would I do if I was absolutely convinced that nobody would ever find out? What would I do? We've got to be careful with what we allow ourselves to watch, to hear. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a command that... The Israelites were not to seethe a kid, a, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. There's been a lot of discussion about this commandment. And um, the Jewish people today will not eat meat and milk together in an attempt to fulfill that commandment. They have separate utensils and separate bowls and dishes for dairy products and meat. And so... Um, if you, you know, if you ever take a Jewish person out, they probably won't order a cheeseburger, okay? It's just part of what 
is part of their culture. They don't mix the dairy and the meat together. And I've wondered, you know, why that, why that command? That I think there, there is something there. Obviously, that mother's milk was intended to give life to that young goat. And to use that milk to cook the goat, there's just something a little, um, it, it just almost perverse. And that may not be exactly the right word, but I think there's something there that just kind of goes against nature, that this thing that was meant to give life is now the implement whereby death is brought. And, and I've wondered if maybe the Lord gave them that commandment because he did not want them to be desensitized to certain things. And I, we're all grown-ups in here. And I think if you, I don't suspect that if you, you know, watch a certain thing that you're liable to take off and rob a bank or um, run down the street and do some awful thing. But I do worry that if we consume too much of some things, does it desensitize us? And it, it changes our view of what we think is normal and what we view as then acceptable. And we lose our sense of maybe God is not pleased with this thing. And this regular consumption of certain things desensitizes us. And, you know, I, so I was raised in the church and the thing I, one thing from friends and different things, one thing I have never understood and it's just me, I'm not, but I've never understood horror movies. I just don't get it. And I think, why would you, and they're like, well, you get used to it. Really? I mean, is that something you want to do? Is get used to this sort of murder and mayhem and all sorts of things? I mean, I, I just can't, I mean, I remember as a kid, I could hear commercials or advertisements for a movie and it just i'd have nightmares okay i mean i'll just be honest with you my sister and i joke it's like we used to get scared at the animated version of batman you know it's like but but then i worry that if we get too sophisticated what are we desensitizing ourselves to and what are we becoming acclimated to and there's that old song i don't want to get adjusted to this world there is something there should be something in us that is pulling us and is drawing us away from those things because if they grieve God, they should be grieving us. And as we're drawn closer and closer to the Lord, then we should be grieved by those things all over again. And don't forget Romans 1 because toward the end of Romans 1, he's naming off all of these things, talking about how terrible these things are. And then he says, and those that take pleasure in those that do those things. When that becomes part of our entertainment, I've watched some old classic movies before, and they're historically based and all of that, but just be like, you know what? The storyline involved an adulterous affair, and I just can't 
I, I'm sorry. I just can't. Yeah, Oscar winner in the mid-60s, whatever, that's all well and good, but it just doesn't fit because I don't want to get adjusted that way of thinking. So these are the things that as we begin to draw ourselves closer and closer to the Lord, and I'll circle back to these spiritual disciplines again, regular church attendance, prayer, reading the Bible, instead of doing, being engaged in other things, when we do that, we create an environment in our lives that is toxic to these ideas, tends to snuff them out. So I think this is the, uh, this is the way in which we are being called to live. We have the Spirit of God resident in us, and we are being called to be like Him. The clarion call for holiness throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is rooted in God's holiness. He says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And our lives in this world will not attain to that level of purity. But that's no reason that we should stop maturing and growing and seeing the power of the Spirit of the Lord be victorious in our lives. You know, sometimes the reason why we tolerate certain things, and I am coming to a close, I promise. The reason why we tolerate some things in our lives is we're too busy looking at what is normal in the world and not what is pleasing to God. And if we really had a sense of how displeasing to God sin is, and let me just say, not just displeasing to God, but destructive. We toy with things sometimes. And if we're not careful, it's not as common these days, but there were folks that would hand out snakes and they pass them around because the scripture said you'll take up a serpent and it won't harm you so we don't we don't get the snakes out now and I'm not arguing for it please don't get me wrong but we toy with spiritual things and we think I can handle it my family can handle it and the lord will be gracious to us and the Lord will, and we allow, because we have lost sight of how destructive sin can be. There is no upside to sin. And the truth is we ought to be being drawn and pulled further and further away from those things. As bad as the world is, and we all look at the culture and we shake our heads and rub our chins and wonder what in the world are we going to do? As bad as the world is getting, we should be going just as fast in the opposite direction and there should be a greater demarcation between the church and the world than there has ever been. The only way that happens, though, is when we are submitted to the will of God and we allow the Holy Ghost to work in us and the things that are pleasing to Him are the things that are pleasing to us and the things that grieve Him grieve us and over time we'll find ourselves drawn toward him. Amen. Why don't you stand with me as we close tonight in prayer. I'd like for us to end with a time of prayer, not only about these words, but also for needs in our congregation. You know those who are in need of prayer tonight. We also have some friends with us. I'd like to ask Brother Roger to come forward and we want to pray for him 
And um, these are friends that are visiting. Sister Deneen, you can come. Gammy, come with them. And we will pray. But as we wrap up tonight, let's just finish in a time of prayer. And uh, Pastor and uh, Brother James will come and pray. And we remember all of the needs that we have and, and especially be in prayer for our friends, the Knowltons, over the next few days. Would you do that with me? Lord, we're grateful tonight. So thankful for this time together. Thankful for the word of the Lord that is brought to bear in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would create in us a sensitivity, Lord, for your word and that we would be drawn to you and the things that are pleasing to you would be pleasing to us. Lord, you see the many needs in our congregation. We're asking, Lord, for a special touch. We pray for Roger Knowlton tonight, Lord, that you would work in his heart, his life, that you would work in his body, God, that you would bring complete healing. We believe you, Lord. We know that you are a healer and that you have the power, God, to do a great work. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Lord, you see needs in our congregation. Brother Twentyer, Brother Wyndham, Lord, you're able to strengthen and you're able to work. Our, our hope is in you, Lord. We put our hope in your healing power. We trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We thank you, Lord. We know that you have heard us. We know that you hear us tonight. We give you thanks, Lord. We give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, we magnify you, Lord. We lift you up. You are great, O Lord, and you are greatly to be praised. We thank you for it tonight, Jesus. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Lord bless you. Go in the strength of the Lord tonight. We will see you this weekend. Amen.